This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode of New Books and Sociology. My name is Michael Johnston, and today we have Dr. Syed Ali, Professor of Sociology at Long Island University, Brooklyn, here to discuss his new book, The Peer Effect, How Your Peers Shape Who You Are and Who You Will Become, which he co-published with uh, Margaret M. Chen, and it's a 2023 book from NYU Press. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Excellent. So to start off with, let's talk a bit about how you came to, to write this book. What, um, what about peers interested you and why did you decide to write this book? So my interest in peers is from a while ago when I was in grad school in the, in the 90s and I was studying uh, race, ethnicity and immigration stuff and a big book on uh, second generation born or brought up in the U.S. immigrants had come out in the mid-90s by very top scholars. And I read it, and it was about mainly kids in junior highs. The bulk of second generation kids were in junior high at the time. And the they were looking at outcomes of, of kids, and their kind of causal variables were, you know, well, it's about the parents, and it's about the ethnic group. And I was... On, I'm, I was born in 68, so I'm at the kind of beginning phase of, you know, post-1965 immigration and the kids who are raised here. And I was kind of insulted by this. It's like, you know, it's like I'm, you know, I make my own choices, right? Like I like there is no sense of agency for for these, you know, second generation immigrants. And even from back then, I thought, you know, well, what about friends, right? Like, what about our, our peers? And that always like kind of kind of like nagged at me. And the more I got into immigration research, like after I finished my PhD, I, you know, it was very clear that like the main competing theories of immigrant assimilation all had to do like they, they're all using the same variables, right? Parents and ethnic group and kind of uh, government actions and, and things like that. And nobody's looking at the, like what I thought was the most important proximal, proximate variable, which is, you know, who you hang out with affects who you become. So I wrote a couple of articles, uh, you know, in the 2000s on, um, on uh, uh, peer effects among, among immigrants. And it just got me thinking that, you know, there's a bigger story here to be, to be told. And that's how I eventually came to like, once I finished, you know, like the, my, my last book, I kind of turned to this and was like, all right, this is something I want to really cover. Yeah. And what I found most interesting about this book is while the main focus was on peers and agency is really this, uh, this two prong system of 
culture serving as a boundary or a structure and agency and individual individualism and the ability to uh, make oneself, as you mentioned earlier, one of the frustrations that you had was like, hey, I, I'm growing up and what about me? I, I, I make who I am, right? So um, can we start off with boundaries and uh, what you mean by uh, cultural boundaries? Yeah, sure. So there's been like a lot of stuff written in sociology over the last 20 years on like cultural boundaries coming out of sociology of culture stuff. But I kind of I'm like my background is race ethnicity. And so like I'm going to be a little bit geeky here and go through go through some of the theory. So like so for me, Frederick Barth uh, was a touchstone. So like his 1969 book is what most sociologists know Barth for uh, ethnic groups and boundaries. And in that book, he, he talks about um, how uh, when you're, when you're looking at ethnic ethnicity, right. And ethnic groups, culture is not really what you should be thinking of. Right. He called it cultural stuff. He's like, that's not what defines the ethnic group. It's the boundaries, right. The boundaries tell us, who we are and who they are, right? And sometimes the boundaries are stronger, sometimes they're they're weaker. And if there's no other group around, then there's no real reason to define yourselves. Like when we define ourselves, we're defining ourselves in opposition to something else. We're American, we're not Canadian, we're Jewish, we're not Christian, right? Et cetera, et cetera. And so that was really influential in the field of field of ethnicity. And then Joanne Nagel wrote an article in 1994 and her thing was like, okay, let's take Barth, but let's bring culture back into the story. So her thing was, okay, so the boundaries, like Barth said, it tells us who we are, right? We're American, we're not Canadian. But it's the cultural stuff that defines what we are. And the more cultural stuff that there is, the more depth it gives to the identity and the more long, longer lasting it will be. So, and it gets elaborated, right? So the identity of being Christian, right? So you have an identity that's been around in some form or another changes a bit here and there, but it's 2000 years old and it's, you know, the cultural stuff is, you know, it's the cross and it's the saints and it's the relics and it's, you know, the mass has gone from Latin into vernacular and there are all these different things that, you know, define it and give it depth. Right. And so like that identity is not going to not going to go away. It's not ephemeral. And it's very different from, say, you know, clicks in in high schools. Right. So like some clicks are more long lasting, like, you know, the band kids and the cool kids. Right. The jocks. But other cliques are really ephemeral. It's like me and my friends who hang out at the cafeteria at this table. It's like right after after four years of high school, that clique is going to disappear. But the band kids and the jocks they replace their members over, over time. Right. So they are long, longer lasting and, you know, back to religions, right. The members are constantly being replaced and the, and the more and more cultural stuff. So even though some cultural stuff will get lost, right. The mass in Latin, other stuff comes in and gives it, gives it more depth to make it longer lasting. So the boundaries and the culture, there's an interplay there, right. So the, the, the cultural stuff, it informs the boundaries and it uh, helps to define who we, who we are. Right. But even though that changes, the who is still really important. Right. So like, you know, take, for example, being a New Yorker. So what it means. So the, you know, being a New Yorker over the last hundred years is pretty stable. Right. It's the people of the four boroughs of New York plus the fifth borough of Staten Island. Maybe we leave them in. Maybe we don't. But generally the five boroughs in New York, that makes us New Yorkers. But the cultural stuff changes. Right. So like think about food. Right. So like 
pizza and bagels are, are definitive food characteristics of New Yorkers, right? Every New Yorker is going to say pizza and bagels is like you outside New York, you don't have those things. Don't, don't talk about them. But before the Jews and the Italians came, we didn't have pizza and bagels, right? So the, so like that was a cultural addition. And today, you know, hot dog carts were a mainstay, right? Culturally, everybody ate hot dogs and knishes off the, off the carts. Those aren't even around anymore. And now like the food culture has shifted. Now you have these halal carts, right? That, that the Arabs and the Pakistanis run. And so, you know, so the cultural stuff, it changes, but the boundaries are still, still, still remain, right? So that's... Uh, so when we're talking about, you know, culture, it's always the culture of a people, right? That's, that's important. And I think like thinking about in terms of going back to like ethnic groups and, and boundaries, that's, that's key is that, you know, this group has this, has this culture, right? And that helps to define who we are. So even groups that look similar and sound similar, like Americans and Canadians, they're important cultural differences be, between us. And, and tying it back to this book, it's what allows peers to identify with one another. Is that is that accurate? Is that why uh, you start off with this sort of theme of culture and boundaries? Yeah. So the so when when I'm talking about peer effects, I'm talking about uh, mainly kind of horizontal uh, linkages. So uh, if take a different example from from high school kids, like uh, corporate cultures, right? So you look at Google's homepage and HR is, you know, very like they trumpet, you know, we have the Google way and this is what, you know, our, our culture is. And but that's the pronouncements coming from, you know, the C-suite and it's coming from, uh, you know, HR. But the, the culture of the company happens in the offices, right, in the workplaces. And it's among the people who who work there. So like the lower level workers, they have their own way of doing things, their own way of interacting that HR might not even know about. So, I mean, you look at the HR page and they're like, we don't discriminate, but you look at what's actually going on, there's a lot of discrimination, right? There's gender discrimination, there's racial discrimination. In California, right now you have lawsuits against a lot of these major tech companies for caste discrimination. So among among Indians, you have right hierarchical castes, and there are enough lower caste people that they feel discriminated against, and they're suing. The managers probably have no clue that this was even a thing that was that was going on, right? Because their whole thing is we don't do these things, but on the ground it happens. And in high school, it's kind of a, a similar thing, right? The kids, the high school kids, create their own cultures, right? Their own do's and don'ts, their own norms and, and things like that. And the parents and the teachers and the administrators generally have no clue of, of what's going on. So even though they say, this is our culture, that may have nothing to do with what's actually happening on the ground. Uh, so, uh, so peers uh, are, are, Peers are heavily influential, not only uh, as children, but throughout one's life. You're you're, you're making uh, rec- uh, references to adults and things like human services, uh, excuse me, human resources departments, and as well as uh, to children in high school uh, in this conversation that we're having today. Um, so uh, what is it about peers that make them so influential uh throughout the whole growth and development process from childhood to adulthood. So let's, let's talk about kids first before we get to get to adults. So for, for kids from a very, very young age, the people who are most important to them 
are their peers. I mean, we love our parents and our parents are important. And we look around for our parents when we're like one, two, three, four, five years old. But we really, really look at our peers. And, you know, like if you like people who work in daycares, right, they know this, they see this with like little babies. And Judith Harris, who wrote this incredible book on peers, uh, 25 years ago called the nurture assumption she had a great story that she that she found from these uh, from from these uh, 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 psychology researchers and they were studying like in the in daycare and they talked about this one Chinese American baby who was in daycare at 12 months old and the mom taught the baby you know you want a bottle of milk you say nine nine right for bottle of milk nine nine and the kids in there for a few months and at 15 months the kid starts to say baba for the bottle Right. And mom's like, nai nai. And the kid's like, ba, ba, ba. Right. What's happening there? The what happened was that the other kids in the daycare called the bottle of milk baba. And so then this Chinese American baby, in spite of what the mother is commanding her to say, is like, no, <laughs> this is the correct term is baba. And that brings up like this issue of cultural transmission, like how this culture go from right from older to, to younger. And, you know, there's an assumption that it goes from parent to child and their, you know, media influences. And, you know, there's a lot of that is true. We do learn culture, especially from very, very young age, from our parents, right? From within the home. But once we're at the point where we're leaving the home, right? Whether you're like nine months old and you're going to daycare, or if you never were in daycare, you're going into the park, right? You're going into, you know, preschool or whatever at some point. At some point, you're going to be exposed to other kids on a, on a regular basis. And the culture that you bring from your parents is kind of a script right it's like a little toolkit and then you're comparing notes with the with the other kids and so some stuff that's in common you keep and some stuff that's not in common you discard and you think about you know immigrant kids right so a lot of immigrant kids even ones who grow up in a household that speaks english they their language is imperfect even kids who grow up you know who are not immigrants right there's like idiosyncrasies to, to languages and like words that are not common to each other, you're going to you're going to discard or you're going to learn, oh, this is not what everybody else says it. So like, for instance, uh, you know, in Judith Harris's book, she talked about how when she encountered other other little kids, you know, she used the word pinky for like, you know, the, the end, end finger. And one of the girls like pinky. And she's like, pinky, pinky. And then Judith Harris was like, oh, maybe I'm saying the wrong wrong word. And she stopped saying it. But it could have been that the other girl didn't know the word either, right? There are these kind of gaps in our in our knowledge. And kids will fill those gaps and they, they will transform the cultural stuff that we that we that we inherit from from our parents. And these are a product of culture and boundary, right? As it ties back to the earlier question as to how it's interpreted and how information is transmitted from one person to the next across peer groups. Yeah. And so like when you're, when you're in your peer group, you're going to develop its own, like each peer group is going to develop its own kind of culture, its own way of talking, its own, you know, norms of behavior, its do's and do's and don'ts. And, you know, like, if you're a member is member of a multiple multiple peer groups, you're going to learn to code switch, right, and like do the things that each group expects you to to do, and and you'll act differently with your parents too, right? So we act we act one way 
you know, with our with our parents, and we can act completely different with with our with our peers without even really thinking about it. And uh, who one considers to be their peers, does this have any influence on who a person not only is, but who they will become um, later on? Yeah, and it, it depends upon how uh, tightly defined the peer group is, like how strong that the boundary is and how strongly you identify with their, with their norms. So, for instance, uh, we have one chapter in the book on Stuyvesant High School. So Stuyvesant is a public high school in New York City. It's, a, it's an exam school, right? Like the, the sole entrance uh, uh, criteria is how well you do on this, on this one test. And so the kids tend to be, you know, pretty well, pretty good academically at, at, at the school. And there's this uh, culture of, of achievement that we, that we talk about in this, in this chapter. And the idea here is that, like, you can screw around as much as, as, much as you want, but at the end of the day, you got to get your work done. Right. And so the so everyone and so like the at Stuyvesant, it's like 40 percent, 45 percent poverty rate. Right. Measured by kind of free lunch. Right. The proxy measure for poverty in schools. And but almost everybody graduates high school. Almost everybody goes to college and most of them go to uh, like selective colleges. And, you know, they all almost all end up middle class or, or upper middle class or, or wealthy, right? People from very, very humble socioeconomic economic backgrounds. And so the, so like that is, you know, one of these long lasting effects of, you know, I'm going to, you know, like there are people at, at I mean, it's, it's changed a little bit now, now that you have like, you know, the like scanned ID cards, like kids aren't cutting class nearly as, nearly as much though it, though it does happen. But, you know, back in my day in the, in the eighties of school, you know, there'd be people who are out like getting high and dropping ass and like getting drunk on a daily basis. And they became doctors and lawyers and, you know, other things. And that was expected, right? It was expected that, yeah, fine, you're going to do that, but you're going to do your homework and you're going to study for the tests and you're going to do well in the SAT and, and, and all these things. Uh, conversely, there's, you know, like it also works the other way. So Jay McLeod wrote this great book years ago called Ain't No Making It. And he was looking at this one uh, group, of, group of kids called the hallway hangers who are white, uh, like, you know, from poor backgrounds, single moms, uh, household. And they were like their whole thing was we purposefully do not do well in school like we're like if you're a straight a student you're a you're a fuck up you should not be doing that right like they they didn't allow like their whole like their norm was to like do very very badly in school and so that had effects upon you know their later labor outcomes so mcleod followed up with them at, at different stages and he found that you know none of them went to college and they had, mostly ended up doing like, you know, like kind of like service sector, low paid, low paid jobs. So, you know, long term effects, you know, definitely in, in multiple directions. Um, so from a uh, from a network theory approach, it, it does somewhat have something to do with um, who one knows and and how they learn uh, among their peer groups and in terms of how their future ends up. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of overlap with with uh, with network theory, right? Who you know affects who you become. But there's also like the the one thing I think that's important for the the peer stuff is peer culture. So, you know, like yes, like there's there's a direct effect of you know like I want to be 
like my peers and I want to, you know, hang out with them and I want to do those things. But there's also an indirect effect of the, of the culture. So at a place like Stuyvesant, like you can come in and you're going to like, even without discussing with anybody, you're going to figure out what the norms of behavior are, right? You're going to go into class and maybe you're like, you come out of eighth grade as like the class clown and you come into a place like Stuyvesant and you find out, yeah, no, that's not going to fly right? You tell the joke and nobody's laughing. And then you learn, okay, that's not something we do here. Right. And, you know, one of the people who I interviewed, <clears throat> he had, he put it really well. He said, you know, like you, you, you learn early on, like what you can do and what you can't do. And, you know, if you're a fuck up, like, I don't want to be that guy. Right. I don't want to look bad in front of my, in front of my peers. Nobody told you this, but you figure it out pretty fast. Right. It's in, it's in the air. For you to for you to understand what i found interesting about stuyvesant is about how it appeared to have more of a uh more of a flat model among one another yes there were the fuck-ups as you talked about slightly that you know went off bound left uh, left school to do uh to smoke weed or or drink alcohol or whatever but even there it, they they were successful However, there are other institutions that you uh, recognize in this book and about how the American education uh, tends to be hierarchical and uh, as well as tends to adopt extracurricular activities more than other schools. Could you, could you talk a bit more about how the American education system is different than other places like Finland? Yeah. So like <clears> – <throat> Uh, so on the one hand, like what you said, we have a lot of extracurricular activities. We have sports, we have clubs that, you know, they don't have it at other places. And uh, Murray Milner, who like his work is really influential here with the with the peer stuff. He wrote a book on American high schools and he talked about how, you know, like the one of the reasons why peers are so important is that we spend way more time in schools than other places. So in other countries, you have sports, but sports are not in the schools, right? They're in the neighborhood associations or, you know, wherever clubs, but they're not, they're not school-based. So in, in other countries, you don't have like peer effects that develop as strongly as here in the school. So he studied some schools in, in India and he couldn't find any, like he couldn't find any evidence of, clicks the way that we we have them here right so like you know your typical high school movies have no resonance over over there because they don't that like they just don't have that kind of like they have divisions among the students but it's based upon like your test scores right you have like and you know this this researcher uh i forget her name but she did a dissertation on on chinese schools and she found a similar thing that there are there are no groups in the way that we have groups in high schools here, but they do have distinctions based upon how well you do on your tests, but they don't affect other types of social interaction. So it doesn't affect, you know, who you date or who you, you know, hang out with or who you eat lunch with. Right. And Milner kind of found the, the same thing in, in India too. So the, so our schools are, are unique in that we have this, you know, this, this whole like one-stop shopping for, for social and school life. The other thing about our schools that's uh, maybe not unique, but different than, than Finland, certainly, is we have a really, really high degree of segregation in our schools across the country. And within schools, we have tracking. Uh, it's changed a little bit in the last couple of decades, but it's still a lot more prevalent than, than in other places. So uh, Annie Oaks, who's... Uh, probably one of the most prominent people who study tracking, right? She found that 
you know, the, like we, we track really, really hard and we track by, by race too. And not only do we track by race, but we kind of funnel people in and out based on their race. So she did a study, I think it was in, in, uh, Long Beach where, or San Jose, I think it's San Jose, where she looked at, uh, uh, tracking into the honors track. And she found that white and Asian kids who didn't have particularly good grades were still kind of pushed into the honors. And black and Latino kids who had grades that should have gotten them into honors were kind of counseled out of honors into the into the mainstream. So and we tracked from a from a very, very young age. So even though tracking has like the like within the schools, the tracks of this is the honors track and the honors kids only take classes here and this normal track and this is special ed track. Well, that's shifted, you know, somewhat. We still do a lot of tracking uh especially between schools. So like in New York city, we have, we used to have tracking within the schools. So you'd have a lot of, while the schools would look racially mixed, you look at who's taking classes with whom and it's pretty segregated. And now we have a lot more tracking, uh, uh, between schools. So this is a good school. This is a bad school. Now, Finland, on the other hand, they don't track, until around the age of 16 and where they have to make a decision to go into the academic track or into the vocational track. But up to that point, everybody's in class together. They don't have within school tracks. There's no honors and you know normal and special ed track. And and their outcomes are are really good. So like, you know, one thing that people in the education world always talk about is um is the the PISA exam right? The PISA. I forget exactly what it what it stands for, but it's just every few years they administer this exam, and countries get all excited about it. And the Finnish kids they don't do standardized exams. Like here, we're all experts in standardized exams. By the time we're seven, we have our number two pencils sharpened, and we're we're ready to go and fill in those bubbles. They don't do any of that until like much much later. And for a lot of those kids, I think the PISA is the first time they're doing a standardized exam, and they go in and they and they blow it away because they learn a lot and they learn a lot. Uh, like like here, we have you know like we have a lot of kids who are high performing, but we have like a incredible amount of kids who are not right and in finland you don't have that to the anywhere to the same degree right you have like the kind of culture of of schooling is kind of like a lot more like stuyvesant right kids are more engaged in in school across the board and they don't have this idea of good schools and, and bad schools school is school right this school is no different or better than that school over there it's beginning to change since since uh you know we finished up the book i um was looking at some more recent uh, uh essays that came out in the last year and you know there's some argument that yeah there's a little bit of segregation that's beginning to happen but they don't really present much evidence that like there's a yawning gulf between I mean, there's no evidence that there's a yawning gulf between the high performers and low performers like there like there is here. And Amanda Ripley, who wrote this book, The Smartest Kids in the World, and she studied Finland as one of her one of her case studies. She makes the she makes the argument that uh, countries where tracking happens at a much earlier age tend to do have much worse outcomes for the broader number of students than countries that don't track or don't track until until much later. So, and a big part of that story is again, peer effects, right? If you're, if you track, you're separating out the high performing kids from the lower performing kids, 
Whereas if you have no tracking, then the high performing kids and low performing kids are all in class together. And there's going to be some kind of, there's going to be an effect, right? And Rucker Johnson, an economist at, at Berkeley, he wrote a book on school integration. And here in the US, what he found was that where poor kids and black and Latino kids, when they go to school with white kids, they do better, right? They're compared to kids who go to uh, segregated schools, the kids in integrated schools do do better at, at school and they have better life outcomes, right? They have lower rates of getting arrested, going to jail and, you know, higher rates of, you know, all, all the good stuff and college going and, you know, higher paying jobs and the white kids don't, don't suffer at all, right? And so there's a benefit to, you know, everybody for for integration uh that's not a problem in, in places that that don't have tracking and that don't have high, high levels of uh, of school segregation and it has a lot to do I think, with access to cultural capital that exists within those social settings and being integrated with one another mm-hmm. um the peers learn from one another yeah absolutely they like the the kids who don't have cultural capital they're you know if they're in school with kids who have it they learn it Right. And Seamus Khan kind of talked about that in uh, in his book, Privilege, about, you know, St. Paul's St. Paul's school. And, you know, we we talked about it, you know, for Stuyvesant High School, like uh, like Stuyvesant, like the the divided Stuyvesant was not just, you know, poor kids and, and richer kids and, you know, children of immigrant kids versus native kids. But also it was kids from the outer boroughs. So the Manhattan kids they know how the world works, right? And they're like, they're culturally sophisticated. And, you know, I came from Staten Island, which is the hinterland, and I didn't know anything from anything. And, you know, I learn stuff from these from these kids about how, how the world works and, you know, how to be cosmopolitan and sophisticated and learn to apply to in colleges, right? That was, that's like another thing that you get from kids with cultural capital. They're like, you know, what should I do? It's like, well, this is what you should do, right? And just like the, there, there's a whole, like, you know, body of research on like class and economic class and going to college and kids who are from poor backgrounds, even if they have the academics to get into more elite schools, they tend not to. They, they won't apply to those schools or they won't go if they get in, right? If you're in Michigan, you know, and you're a poor kid or, you know, working class kid, you're probably not going to go to University of Michigan. Instead, you're going to go to Eastern Michigan, right, to be closer to home and you'll feel more comfortable there. At a place like Stuyvesant, right, it's the same socioeconomic background, but you're learning from your peers. Oh, no, there's no, that's not where we apply. Like, you're going to apply to, you know, SUNY Binghamton, you're going to apply to Harvard, you're going to apply to, you know, Johns Hopkins and all these, you know, elite, elite type of elite type of schools. I mean, it might not necessarily affect the particular school that you go to, but it's going to affect the types of schools that you're going to, that you're going to consider. And so the same kid, you know, from a working class background, if she didn't go to Stuyvesant, then she might've ended up going to, you know, a CUNY, which is, you know, great school, but it's not Harvard. And then once they get into the school, does the does this pure effect during high school influence how they uh, how well they do once in higher education as well? Uh, well, that's there's the like a lot of the kind of research from economists 
would say no. It's kind of mixed, right? Mixed bag. And I think part of the story there is that like when they're looking at this kind of broad swath of data, it's looking at it for everybody, right? But if you're looking at the like if you're looking at within the the dynamics within the peer groups, then you, you're going to find some you're going to find uh, uh, variation there. So Janice McCabe, who wrote this uh, great book a couple of, a couple of years ago in an article for Context Magazine, she found that the type of peer uh, networking that you do has an effect upon uh, academic and, and social outcomes. So she talked about how you know like one kind of like one like one group of kids at this big what she called Midwestern University, they have two kind of friend groups. So one friend group is their study friend group, and one friend group is their party friend group. And, you know, they're able to separate out the academics from the fun and they do well, right? They graduate within four years and they get pretty decent grades. And then there are kids who have like one big friend group and they could go either way because if your friend group is more, you know, partying inclined, that's going to affect your grades because that's that's what you're going to do. If your friend group is more kind of, you know, like academically inclined, that's what that's what you're going to do. So she found that kind of bifurcation there. And then you had like a third type of friend grouping where like people didn't have like one or two peer group, but they just had like individual friends. And these people were in some ways kind of loners because their friends were, it's like, okay, I'll meet you. We'll have coffee. I'll meet you. But they, they felt lonely, these, these, these kids. And they, they did well enough academically and they graduated. But her, but her point was that, you know, the type of the, the way that you interact with your peers is going to have an effect. And that's the kind of thing I think we get lost in like the big, the big data. So while, you know, the kind of economic studies don't show that, uh, you know, there is necessarily that effect. I think like if you drill down to uh, looking at how the peer groupings are made, that that might be able to show you. And I think McCabe does a good job of showing this. Yeah, and it has something to do, I think, with you know identity and whether or not it is something that is uh, fluid or or if it's something that's rigid, and and then looking at culture and and how uh, how one engages with it from high school onto onto college and university. Yeah, and the and but to, I think I don't really think I answered your question before, but like, does it have a long lasting effect? And I, I I think so. And you know, like with with academics. It's kind of tough because, like, I, I think the basic idea is that what is important to your peer group, right? Some things won't be important, right? So, like, you know, like your religious background in many peer groups in high school, who cares, right? She's Jewish and he's Muslim and they're, you know, Buddhist, whatever. That's that's your private thing, right? There's no norm that kind of talks to that. Whereas at religious schools, there will be norms that that speak to that right like the like you're gonna have like you know muslim kids and hindu kids in a catholic school and you know they're they may get ostracized for that you know by by their peers but in like you know a lot of public schools that's not that's not an issue so like things that aren't important to the peer group like you can do what you want but things that are right that will so like again at stuyvesant like academic performance is important and so you get into this this habit of, of doing the, doing the work, right. Even if you, you are like going out to the park and getting high, 
you're still going to do your homework. Even if you're doing it while you're high, you just got to get it done. And you, and you know this. And, you know, so like this kind of culture of achievement establishment does have long lasting, long lasting effects. And there are secondary things to it too. One woman that I, that I interviewed, she, uh, when she was working as a kind of mid-level manager at an insurance company, she told me that she would walk into meetings with, you know, like the big bosses and, you know, like all these people way above her, older and more experienced and higher ranking. And she never felt threatened. And she said, you know, that was something that I learned at Stuyvesant. That was a cultural thing. Like we learned that, you know, like we didn't have this imposter syndrome thing. We belong wherever there's a room. I belong there. I'm not going to be the smartest person in the, in the room, but I belong in that room and I'm not going to be cowed by, by anybody. And, you know, that's, that's a kind of cultural thing too, right? I mean, we talk about imposter syndrome a lot in the, in the academy and in, in work situations and the, you know, there's a, a lot of, I think a lot of that is probably learned behavior, right? You like you learn like, oh, I shouldn't, you know, speak up or whatever. But at, at Stuyvesant, you know, we learned, we learned to hustle. We learned that, you know, we, we belong. And, you know, there's part of it was there's a chip on, 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 on these kids' shoulders that, you know, in the end, even though this is an elite school, we're a public school. And, you know, especially like the people that I interviewed were mostly, you know, graduates from the 70s and 80s and 90s when New York was, you know, really rough place, right? It was like economically in the tank and it was, you know, like crime was really high, it was really violent. And so we had to like, you know, figure out how to like make our way without like, you know, getting mugged and, and beaten and, and, you know, just like develop a kind of toughness for all kinds of, all kinds of situations. And a lot of that we learn, you know, from our, our peer interactions and that carried over and carried forward. And like for this one woman, she talked about how, you know, like 30 years on, she was still learning those, like she was still repeating those lessons. So yeah, there are very long lasting effects. And in, in the a culture of education in a, in a diverse setting, I remember that quite clearly within that uh, within the within Stuyvesant, it was made up of people from all over the all over New York, right? Yeah, so it was geographically diverse at the time. It was very uh, racially diverse. Like the in the by the late eighties, the school was um, probably like in the thirties thirty percent range for Asian Americans. It was. 15% black and Latino and like, I think like 30, 40% white. So it was, and I mean, today it shifted dramatically. It's more like almost 75% Asian American, 20% white, like just like a handful of people who are like black or black or uh, Latino. But it was, uh, but I mean, from the people back then, there was also, that was another, you know, lesson was that it was the kind of integration and racial integration. You know, we, for a lot of people, a lot of black students, Latino students, this is their first time, right, in school with, with white kids. And for a lot of the white and Asian American kids, this is their first time being with black and Latino kids. And, you know, pretty much everybody we talked to was like, you know, this was really, really important for us. And then the school becoming a maybe a primary identity and the peers assisting in, uh, in creating a, an environment where they see themselves as being in certain places where they otherwise may not have seen themselves in terms of higher education going back to that right yeah yeah so it was like like there was no like like for a lot of kids when they're applying for a school it's like okay i want to my safety school and this is my long shot school and you know but like for for the Stuyvesant kids 
it was there was no long shot. It was like I, yeah, Harvard is in my is in my is in my wheelhouse. Like I can do, I should I should I deserve to go to Harvard. I belong at at Harvard, right? Even if you didn't get in, you were going to apply, right? And you weren't going to apply to Eastern Michigan. You know, you're going to apply to University of Michigan, right? This whole idea that, you know, I'm, I'm from this, you know, poor, you know, working class background, I shouldn't aim, aim too high. That wasn't there at, at Stuyvesant. And, you know, look long term, right? The statistically, like in, in the US, if you're, you know, if you grow up working class, you're going to end up working class or maybe one rung up. And, you know, conversely, if you're born wealthy, you're going to end up wealthy or maybe one rung down, right? There's a lot of immobility in the system. Whereas, you know, these Stuyvesant kids, it's just, it's up, right? It's, it's upward mobility. Like if, if you're, you're, you know, you grew up poor and you went to Stuyvesant, it's highly unlikely that you're going to stay poor because you're going to go to college and you're going to go to, you know, an elite college or at least, you know, like a, like a middle level college where you're going to end up getting a good job and going to the professionals. You know, so that's uh, like, that's a, I think a big difference from a place like Stives. And it's not unique to just Stives. And obviously there are other schools that are public schools that are, you know, selective and, you know, the, there's going to be a similar dynamic at, at those places too. Yes. Uh, and, um, we kind of made it. We're kind of going through the life course in a relatively short amount of time. But I, I think beyond high, higher education, um, going graduating and then going on into a career, I think these long term relationships with uh, peers are important, or at least that's one of the things that stood out in in your book. And when a person goes into their career, how, how do peers influence the way that one behaves within uh, within their position at a job. So for example, one of the things you talk about is uh, police culture and um, police and how they perform their everyday job based on, uh, based on the peer effect. Right. So the, so one of the things that I was interested in in that chapter was the rise of the seeming rise of violent behavior among police uh, within different, uh, different areas. And What's what seems to be happening is that uh, where you have police that are engaging in misconduct, right? Other police will like there'll be a rise in misconduct behavior among those other police. So there was a there there's a longitudinal study a couple of years ago uh, by these researchers. They're looking at London police, the Metropolitan London Police, and what they found was that when you transferred cops from who had engaged, you know, in misconduct into new units, the rate of misconduct among those people, the good, you know, the good cops, or at least the clean cops increased, right? So the bad apple is, is rotting the, is rotting the bunch here. And this is, you know, this is something that's uh, like, you find this, you know, in, in many other studies, I'm listening to this podcast right now called the set about the Mullen commission in the early nineties in, in New York city. And they were looking, they're looking into uh, police like, corruption in, uh, in, in one police precinct, the 30th precinct in Harlem. And what they found was that, uh, like tons of these cops were like they're robbing drug dealers like for kilos of cocaine they're robbing them from you know like guns and uh, and and cash and they this was a learned behavior from one cop 
to to another. So by then you have dozens of cops within this precinct that were you know engaging in it. And this is something that happens on a you know almost twenty years basis. Twenty years before that, you had you know the case of Serp- Serpico, right? They made the movie with Al Pacino, and you know Serpico blew the whistle on you know corruption, right? Like drug dealing and stealing by the by the cops in these various precincts in the in in the Bronx. And so you have you know, and again theoretically it makes sense, right? The police are in this like very kind of close knit unit right it's a bounded identity they have this notion that you know we are the cops we stand between we're the blue line between you know anarchy and and civilization and we we protect you we're different right and so they develop their own norms of norms of behavior and and ways of ways of doing things and you know the, the the converse idea well okay if you move the cop who has these you know complaints against them into a unit that doesn't have any complaints, well, the good cops should change the behavior of the bad cop. But it doesn't work that way because you have to look at what are the cultural norms here. And there's no, in, you know, in, in like wherever you hear about, you know, the police excess, where you're talking about Chicago or San Jose or, you know, Austin or New York or wherever, you know, the story is, is you know, it just repeats itself over and over that there's really no norm for, you know, being a good cop. Like if you're like, you know, like you don't beat people and you don't like, you know, rob the drug dealers and, you know, you don't issue, you know, like citations at the, at the end of the month in excessive excessive numbers there's there's no norm for that right it's not rewarded uh well there's there's no structural norm right a vertical norm like the upper brass is not going to reward you for that and your peers aren't going to reward you for that i mean maybe you don't get punished for it but you don't get rewarded for it uh but there's no peer punishment for you know beating up a civilian Right. That's not going to get get the ire from from the from the other other police. So the you know, so the the you know, you see like this violent behavior from from the police, like killings of, of, of people, protesters and, and stuff. And that's not going to get it's not going to get punished from above. And it's not going to get you know, you're not going to get tissed tis by your by your police peers for, for that kind. And then not only does that have, not only does the police behavior have an influence within the police force, it also has an influence on how the people within the community, as citizens, uh, another peer group, and their outlook on the police, right? From the from the opposite side of the yeah, the ga- gazing in on the police. Sure. And that that varies. Right. It's going to vary by context. Right. It varies by race, varies by economic class, varies by, you know, where where you are and also by like the things that the that the police do, too. So like during the right, like the George Floyd protests a couple of summers ago, the like, you know, when defund the police really kind of hit the mainstream as a as a viable viable idea, you know, one subcategory of people was pretty opposed and that's like like middle class like middle-aged older black people like they don't want like you know i live in bedsty in in brooklyn which is a historically you know black ghetto neighborhood and they don't want the cops gone they don't want to defund the police they just want better policing right 
probably not going to get it, but you know, that's what they would, they would like is for the police to come in and do what police are ostensibly uh, supposed to do. All right. I mean, they know that the police are beating protesters and, you know, killing people, but they don't want to get rid of them. They're like, we need the, we need the police. So, you know, the, like, I think socially where you are and the kinds of groups that you're uh, in are definitely going to have an effect upon, like you said, it's going to have an effect upon how you view the police. Yeah. Because, and you know, these views, these perspectives, uh, some, some theorists may even say that no, it doesn't come from osmosis. It's a product of peer groups. It's what one learns from others in terms of how to view the police and how to view other social situations that are taking place within the community. Sure. And those are, and those views will also change too, right? Over time, depending upon, uh, you know, like where you are and who you're, who you're with and, you know, like different social circumstances and, and, you know, that, that makes sense, right? It's like, and on the one hand, you can look at it as, well, you know, we evolved as people, but what we mean, what, you know, if you look at what that actually is, we evolve as people is we've changed our social locations and who we're, who we're interacting with and what we, what we think about things. Yes. Well, this has been a great conversation about the, uh, about the PR effect. And unfortunately we are uh, out of time today, but there is this one last earning question that I have. And that is, uh, what are you up to today? What's your, what are you working on now? Now I'm, I'm kind of, uh, uh, I'm really interested in homeschooling. Like I've been kind of reading about this stuff and I, um, before, even before the pandemic hit, there was like a kind of small, movement. I don't know if it's a movement, but you see it in different places of homeschooling co-ops. And I'm interested in, you know, how are, how are these kids turning out? Right. So it's like, we know, you know, homeschooling, like from, from years ago was very much kind of like Christian thing, get your kids out of the, out of the schools and away from the pernicious effects of the public schools and too much knowledge. But, you know, why are these parents, you know, and a lot of them are in good, you know, quote unquote, good school districts. Why are they pulling their kids out of school uh, to homeschool them? How are these kids doing? How are they doing socially? What kind of peer effects are going on here? And I mean, I'm in early days. I haven't really like dug deep, but I think that's that's something that's really fascinating me right now. Yeah, I found this traveling homeschool, this book that was an autoethnography where she was uh, doing research on on traveling in a caravan. And instead of teaching history through a book, uh, there's still a book, but they actually go to the different locations that they're uh, that they're teaching about uh, in history. And then my my wife works at a church here locally, and there's a huge homeschool culture here in Pella, Iowa. Uh, even though we have a really high performing public school and Christian school in the community. So it'll be interesting to see, well, why, why homeschool? <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again, um, Syed. And uh, I loved having you on the show. Thank you. I really uh, had a great time. appreciate it. This has been another episode of New Books and Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. Have a great day.